I see you, yeah you, flipping through all the podcasts, looking for something different. Tired of those with all the catchy phrases, a one-size-fits-all quick fix schemes that never seem to fit. My name is Anthony Hart, and if you are like me, you want more than a moment. We are looking for a movement of groundbreakers and world changers who are tired of the status quo, willing to throw it all up to see what sticks, willing to ask a question before pointing a finger. This is your invitation into a collection of thoughtful ponderings posed to make you think, one-on-one conversations that challenge you with fresh perspective, and roundtable discussions where sparks fly as iron sharpens iron. Intrigued? Pull up a seat. We've been waiting for you. But don't get comfortable. You might be up next. In the Red is now in session. Let's go. The Bible says we are overcomers, right? That is a statement of our identity. That is not connected to the moment of overcoming. It is walking in an identity. So when we get to a place that we're, we need to overcome, that's what we should be speaking over ourselves. Like that, you're an overcomer, so why are you being underwhelmed? The invitation is, no, keep walking. You will overcome this. You'll get through this. Maybe hard, maybe long, but that's the power of that. So we've been preaching, well, this is only the second week, although we've, it's now four weeks, we, we go here and there, um, a sermon series that's really been in my heart called Altered Living and connecting it back to the power of the altar in our life. And that's not necessarily this altar or if you were ever in a little country church, anybody? Anybody been in a little country church? Maybe you got saved in one. You know those little wooden altars? They were so much oof, pomp and circumstance. Maybe you went to a big church and their altars are, there's some nice ones out there, really. Especially the one that says, this do in remembrance of me. Man, those sweet things. Or maybe you found an altar at a place where there was no altar. Maybe you were in a church where there were See, it's not about the thing, it's about what it represents. Because if you truly grab a hold of what it represents, but not only what it did represent, but what it does represent now. New Testament, New Testament is only a a deeper revelation of the Old Testament. Amen? It's not tearing anything down, it's not tearing anything apart. It is making it more real, more active for you to go and be. The Old Testament was for a group of people to be. The New Testament is the invitation for all to operate in that space, for the church to glorify God, to expand our reach and our impact. The problem with that is the Old Testament was a group of people who had been born and raised in what they believed. The New Testament is an invitation to a bunch of people who are coming from all sorts of directions. And we bring a whole lot of stuff with us in those mindsets which causes distractions, divisions within the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ is more defined by being the body of Christ than it is about being Christ-like. I I talked about this just just earlier, about how so many of us, we don't go to God to ask who he is, we tell him who he is. Or we infer who we think he is. Our feelings and emotions begin to drive but truly an altered moment, truly laying everything on the altar, understanding that it's not a one-time thing, that your altar moment in your very first when you gave your your life to Christ looks drastically different or should 
from one maybe five months later or a year later. And I want to talk about this today from the perspective of two things. I'm going to read this passage again that I read the first week because it is, I believe, in alignment with who we represent. So it is when Paul went to uh, Athens, Greece, he's talking to people who knew nothing of Christ. He's talking to people who had mindsets. If you know anything about um, mythology and Greek mythology, they had a lot of gods, which we're not going to go into that again. Um, <laughs> if you're here, you know. If you know, you know. You can go back and watch it three weeks ago. Great sermon. Um, but he's talking to people who thought they knew what they knew. They had a whole lot of little G gods. They had Zeus and all these, these higher beings that really had zero care about the people of this life. If you ever read about Greek mythology, people were always just used by God. Gods were very emotional. Go look at it. Um, Zeus was... Zeus was a very sexual god. He loved to have sex with, he, with gods, with people, all the things. Like if you begin to get into a lot of these different religions or different older thought process about what gods were, then you can begin to infer who God is. So we, what he's talking about is a group of people who thought they knew, which they really didn't know anything. They just said, oh yeah, lightning strikes, that's a god. So they had to put a name on something. They had to name it because there was a lot of what-ifs. So in that moment, a lot of what-ifs, a lot of what they thought or what they were told. Uh, it's another thing if you're from the South, you get a lot of old wives' tales, right? And you, there's a lot of those that work, but there's a science behind those things that work. But we love to make them mystical. Uh, in church, we even do this. What's one of the scriptures we say, or not scriptures, one of the sayings we say, oh, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever said that? Yeah, me too. You know what I don't say anymore? Lord works in mysterious ways. Why? Because I have zero desire for his ways to be mysterious. I want to know his ways. If you know him more than some of those mysterious ways down here, especially the low-hanging fruit that's, oh, it's just mysterious. No, it's not. He really wants you to walk through. He wants you to know who he is, not that he's just this mystical God. He's the universe. No, he's not. He's God. Well, I don't really... He came and he walked on this earth in man's form and showed us how to walk. So we can access who he is if we get in this word. It doesn't have to be missed. So as Paul is in Athens, he's preaching to some people who genuinely desired to know more. That was the one key about the people who had all these gods. They really wanted to know. They had just stopped learning or stopped looking or knew where to look. And they had assigned this little altar to the unknown God. So I want to read this passage real quick. I'm in the wrong thing. Stick with me. Acts 17, 22 through 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Another word that is used uh, for that to connect with uh, religious also is superstitious. Now, we don't know what Paul's saying right here. Maybe it's however you received it. There were some superstitionists in the crowd. There were some religionists in the crowd. So he was talking to them, and their heart received it in the way it did. But I, I love when that in Scripture Jesus did that sometimes. He said some things that could take and be taken both ways. It wasn't offensive, but it was offensive. If you knew, you knew. 
I, that in every way you are very religious. Like, man, what if Paul walked into church today and said, I, that you are very religious. It's not always good. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In other words, I want to make him known to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. I love the NIV version of um, this 1723, where it said, um, to the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The NIV actually says, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. I want to proclaim this to the church today. Y'all know, I say this word, and I don't mean it in a derogatory way, but I believe in the church, we are ignorant of the very thing we worship. Now, there's levels of ignorance. I'm not talking complete ignorance. I can even tell you today, I'm not as ignorant as I used to be, but I'd be ignorant. Ignorant is this. Ignorant just means a lack of information. A lack of information. It's not a derogatory, you're stupid. No, it generally means you've arrived at a place that is good enough. Maybe it's generational ignorance happens, well, this is what my mom and dad believes, so this is what I'm going to do. There are people who have diets today based on a generational ignorance, and they continue to have diabetes in their family, overweight in their family. Why? Well, that's the way my mom and daddy ate. They ate butter on everything. Okay. Don't listen to anybody else. Listen to mom and daddy. 60 is a good age to die. That's very pointed, but <laughs> ignorance can lead us to a lot of places. We just stop searching. There's a lot of ignorance in the church because based on our denomination, we just stopped looking. Somebody along the way, some pastor along the way told us, this is right, this is wrong, and we're like, okay, I take it your word. We're good. Guess what? If that's what happened, you're not praying to God, you're praying to a man. Because that's not who God is. It may be a piece of him, but if you're only paying a piece of him, it's limiting your connection place. So what he's trying to tell you is all this prayer and all this um, worship that you've allotted to all these other places of worship, this is the one place you should be coming to. For all it, it's a one-stop shop. So as you release what you think you know, as you realize you're ignorant in some places and you come to the source, revelation occurs. Revelation occurs. So as he begins to talk, he says, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And I have more, I had more scripture, but I want to stop right there. Because now I want to talk about the altar a little bit. I know the first week we talked about this, uh, we talked about three things that the altar represents. Identity, first and foremost. But this is not what happens immediately. The second is uh, relationship, and the third is repentance, which is what happens first. As we come to the altar in repentance, that's what this represents in our life, or maybe it's at home, wherever it is, in that moment, it's a moment, not a thing anymore. And this is where we're going to talk about today, Jesus transitioning from a thing to a moment, to an, a relationship, not a religion. Because we can build religion around things. The very thing that he talks about in the Ten Commandments 
we've done in a lot of things in making idols. And really, being altered living is tearing down the, the altars or the idols in our life. Even the religious ones. Even the superstitious ones. Even the natural ones. All that is getting to a place where we understand what Jesus came to do. Because he's not trying to rewind us all the way back to Leviticus, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. Whew, hope you got your hip waders on. Leviticus can be one of those books like, Wee! and we're in a time in our world where it's things like Leviticus that are dividing us. This time of year, every time of year, get on your Facebook, you'll see it. People want to jump on and say, this is wrong. And then the other side wants to say, well, yeah, well, what about this in Leviticus? Am I right or am I wrong? And then somebody says, well, Jesus came to get rid of the laws. That's not what he said. He said, I didn't come to remove the laws. I came to fulfill the law. So then what does that mean? Then this is the broken part. Well, he died on the cross. That means he fulfilled the laws. No, what it means is when you look at his life, how he lived it on, earth, on this earth, he fulfilled the law. And then when he died on the cross, he fulfilled the need for sacrifice because his sacrifice would be all that ever mattered. However, that sacrifice doesn't matter if you don't accept it and you don't walk in the fulfillment of the law. What's the fulfillment of the law? If Jesus walked it out and he invited us to follow him, it wasn't stay 20 paces away from me. It was constantly getting closer because as you begin to walk this out, you'll begin to fulfill the law in areas of your life too. You'll begin to change the mindsets, the superstitious, the religious mindsets that you've been given, the ignorant moments as you gain wisdom in who he is, it will change your walk. I want to title this sermon today, Altering Your Trajectory. So trajectory is this. The definition of trajectory is the path followed by a projectile flying or an object moving under the action of given forces. So at any point, an object that is in movement has a trajectory from A to B. And the trajectory is the path it's taking. So if something's on the ground and you roll it, you're the force that causes this thing to roll. If you throw it, you're the force that caused the trajectory to change. It's still going to the same place, but the forces put on it causes a different trajectory. Uh, golf games today. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You can get up and get into the hole and par, and it be the ugliest par. Ed, am I right? How many ugly pars you had in your life? <laughs> We're going to pray for him. Jesus' name right now. We just announced the spirit of, of lying and deception. Hallelujah. You're out there playing golf, and I'm telling you, you can hit some good shots. And they not go near where, I mean, I've hit some beautiful shots. And it's like, why didn't that go where I wanted it to go? I've hit some bad shots. And like, it's in the hole. Just a few years ago when COVID was here, that was when they stopped taking the sticks out, right? And a lot of uh, golf courses had this rule that if you hit the stick, it's in. Because they didn't want people touching the hole and cross-contamination. 
cooties. I'm I'm off the green and it's par five, so I'm I'm hitting my third shot, and I I hit this thing very thin, smoke it. It's going across the screen, uh, across the green, well into the water, and it hits the flag stick, and I'm like eagle. My father-in-law said, yeah, right. Your trajectory matters is what I want to talk to you about today. And the forces that you allow to dictate your trajectory matter. And you have to understand before you met Jesus, you had a trajectory. You were going somewhere. I can show you where that is. Not the place we like to talk about because we don't want anybody to go there. We want to focus on our path. We don't want to focus on the place of arrival, right? There's a whole lot of people out there right now that are on a trajectory for a place. But we just want to look at their trajectory and say, ooh, that's a nice shot. They have a very good angle. Ooh, that's going to be good. We don't care where they're going to go, but we should. But we're told by the world out there, no, just look at their shot. A shot that pretty can't go to a place that ugly. I believe this, but that sounds good. Well, I, I know when before I was saved, I was a good person. I wasn't a bad person. Slowly, you begin to invalidate even why you needed to be saved. There is a need for this. There's a need for our trajectory. So then when we begin to look at the altar moment, have you ever seen something in motion and something comes out of nowhere and hits it and shifts its trajectory? We're getting the laws of motion here. What is it? A, I forget the second law of motion, but it's something about the equal and opposite reaction to an action. So when something hits, it will hit. If you ever play pool, you hit it with a ball, the ball's going to go a direction or trajectory. If the ball's moving and you hit it with another ball, if you're that kid that used to throw the balls when you're, other people were trying to play, the ball's going to shift trajectory. So we have to understand our first altar moment should have been a movement of trajectory shift. However, comma, I see a lot, and I can remember back in my life, there were some things that didn't change trajectory when I met Jesus. Why? Because I didn't allow that force to really impact me. You can get near Jesus and never be impacted by him. Ask the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were face-to-face -face with him, and it never changed their trajectory. Why is that? Because they were so convinced by the forces that were pushing them. There's so many people, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, people who their direction is not about where they're going, it's what they're running from. And there's a lot of people like this in the church that spend every week running to church, but they're not running to church. They're running away from the brokenness of a life behind them. They're running away from what's been done to them. And that is the trajectory is based off what's in their past, not what's in their future. I want to shift you today because if Jesus came and he said, follow me, I'm here to tell you that the moment he said, follow me, the moment your altar moment, because that's what repentance is. That's what giving your life to Christ is is becoming a disciple. It is signing on the dotted line that I will follow you. In that moment, when you truly grab that invitation into your life, 
Now your trajectory is not affected by what's behind you. It's affected by the invitation of what's in front of you. What if, now playing my golf game backwards, there was this force in the hole that when I hit the ball, it would go in the hole. No questions asked. That's where it's going. This is what our life looks like with Christ. When we give him that, our trajectory shifts because there is an assurance of where we're going. So now our direction, our path, is being activated by a different force. I believe an invitational, a pulling force versus something that's hitting us. But in that, guess what? There's other forces out there. The one force that was on your life before that doesn't stop. So how do we begin to overpower these forces? As one gets stronger, it weakens the other. This is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. So this altar moment has such a bigger moment in our life when we think about it that it shifts our trajectory. It begins to expel us into another way. So I want to read this passage from uh, Hebrews 13, 9 9 and 16. Hebrews 13. So the author of Hebrews is is speaking um, to people just like you and me. Hebrews. But they are people who have come into this belief that have connected with... uh, this is for the church people, really, is what I'm trying to get to. Hebrews were church people, that, but they were connected with Gentiles who had received Jesus. There was the coming together of the church in this moment. This was not the Hebrew people that were off by themselves. This was Christian Hebrew. So he's really connecting to the heart of what this new covenant is, but that it's not a, a lie against the old covenant, but it is a revitalization, a a new revelation of what the Old Covenant was supposed to be and how it's now open to more than just their group of people. So as he's talking, he reveals something um, that's shifting from the altar and the tabernacle place to now what I believe is the place of the new altar for us. And it's not this, but we'll get to it. So 13, 9 through 16. It says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So now we go back to Leviticus a little bit. The altars in the Old Testament were, Scott in here? No. There we go. We're modern day Traegers. You get into Leviticus a little bit, you start looking about when they brought the sacrifices in, they would leave them smoke or leave them cooking for overnight. And then the priest would take and eat of some of those sacrifices. That was the food that was decked to them. You had to get to the different ones. But the altar was a place where you brought your sacrifices to, and some of that became ceremonial food for those who were the priests of that time, Aaron and his lineage. So In this moment, he's connecting with them as Jews and saying there's something different about this altar. Is 
Now, because right here as you begin to see this, he's going to begin to, I don't want to use the word attack, but hold accountable to those who are still connected to this old mindset, this old pre-Messiah Jewish belief, the activation of who Jesus was, because they're still holding on to the way it was done before Jesus came to example it for them. So, have no idea. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest's sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So right here we see a connection piece of the altar, the New Testament altar. And the New Testament altar is the cross. That's right. Now, what happens is from the cross moment till now, we've made other altars. Instead of realizing the power of the one altar that was ever needed. It's not a new one. This is a representation of, because it's a moment of sacrifice on our own, a moment of submission to who God is calling us to be, a moment of laying down ourselves. But the power really happened at the cross. And I began to invest some time in looking at the Old Testament when they had the altars that they would do the sacrifices on. The altars of the Old Testament were not a pretty sight. Go back and read some Leviticus when he tells them how to do the uh, sacrifices of those days. So if you came in and you had to give a sacrifice before you ever entered into the city, at the gate of the city, you would slit the throat of the animal. And then you would bring that animal into the city and they would do some work on it. Priests that day were as much a surgeon as anything. Taxidermist, all the things, right? Because all of the animal didn't go on the altar. When you get down to all the animals, the insides of it went on the altar for the most part, but the skin, the head, all those stuff would be taken outside and thrown on wood outside of the city. Why is that? I begin to think about that. So if you think about that, what it's really inviting is saying the outside exterior is not a what I want, I want the inside. I want the pure inside that's not been affected by life, that's not been affected by anything else Take that out, what you see, what you value, because that's generally what we see in value, right? The outside, the exterior. You see that cow, ooh, look at those horns and all the things. He said, no, no, I don't want that. I want what you can't see. I want the nourishment. You don't eat the skin. You don't eat the head. You eat the nourishment. I want the valuable piece. And I believe this is a declaration about you today. The valuable part of you is not the outside exterior, what you see, what other people validate in you. The value lies on the inside of you, spiritually, because that's the created being that God made, and he wants that begin to work its way on the outside. So in this moment, they're talking to the Hebrews, and he, what he's saying is, really, the priests who feel like they've got it all together on the outside cannot come and partake of the new altar because they won't give me their inside. Does that make sense? Those who were convinced on who they were, according to the word, the priests that were still living by the old covenant, had zero need for Jesus in the altar. To them, the, the cross didn't represent an altar. It represented an ending of a zealot. A crazy man proclaiming he's God. 
So they would never go bow at that altar. They would never go sacrifice at that altar. They're still going back to the old places, doing the old things, because they feel like they've got it figured out. But this is the invitation to something bigger. It's an invitation into a new relationship. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach. In other words, we have to go out where he was slaughtered, on the cross, on the altar. So now our altar doesn't lie inside of the camp where we're comfortable and secure. It lies out in that place because there was shame and reproach that was left there. It's not pretty. Because you need to leave your ugly things there. You need to allow, as Paul said, to die daily. In 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 5, 13, 5, 31, something like that. But he said, we are called to die daily. That doesn't mean we live in this place of shame and guilt. That's what we've made that to believe, that lead us to believe. Like, oh, I just got to walk around in my ashes and sackcloth, and I got to be ashamed of what I've become. No, it doesn't. But it means if you've got something today that you haven't died to, yesterday, today is the day of death. Whatever you held on to you thought had value today, you need to let go of, today is the day. And I want to connect you to that. Because this word came out as I begin to look at the Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament altars in Leviticus. If you read through Leviticus 1 through 7, 8, it talks a lot about these offerings. And every year, as we shared a few weeks ago, the offering or the, the sacrifice originated in, um, well, we see Abraham do it, but there's no definitive moment of giving a sacrifice until the children of Israel are about to leave slavery in Egypt. And the last plague, he tells them to go sacrifice the, the first uh, uh, sheep, the, the newborn sheep, put that blood upon the door. And when the death angel comes, he'll pass over your house and not take your child. So he did. All the children of Israel, their kids were safe, the firstborn, but everyone in Egypt, the firstborn, were killed because of that, because they didn't put that blood over the door. And then he said, remember this. So give this sacrifice every year. So it based a, a religious moment of connection to God that every year now you would give this sacrifice in response to a promise of fulfillment. But, however, when you get into Leviticus, there's several different um, offerings that are given. There's the grain offering, the guilt offering, the sin offering, the um, the word, the peace offering. There's different offerings. But a word that popped out as I as I begin to look at the guilt and the sin offering was I read um, chapter four, verse one or two. It says, "Speak to the people of Israel, saying, if anyone sins unintentionally." in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, and it goes on, the sins of the priest, the congregation, um, it goes leader, and then it goes any one of the common people. And it all connects back to this place of sinning unintentionally. That word comes up every time. Why? Because an intentional sin will be met with what? Depending on what the sin was, death. If you intentionally murdered somebody, guess what? The intentional punishment is death. As intentional as you did it, you'll be rewarded as, as intentional. So that word unintentionally stood out to me because when you begin to think about the Ten Commandments, it's like, thou shalt not commit adultery. 
have to process that. How do I unintentionally commit adultery? We won't go down that road because that could take us to a lot of different places. Theft, murder, unintentionally. Why that word? What does it mean? And then I really begin to invest, okay, what does that mean to us now? So then I begin to look at Paul, and he's talking to these Athenians and the things that they had done. But guess what? Without knowledge and wisdom, there's so many things that we've done unintentionally. The sins of your life before you met Jesus, whether you know it or not, were unintentional because you didn't know what was right and what was wrong. That's the beauty of a relationship, of an altered moment in our life. As we become aware of what's right and what's wrong, we are invited to submit, to sacrifice something right there, to say, now that I am aware of this, I refuse to continue to do this intentionally. That's why John says in the book of 1 John, he says that those who practice sin, in other words, do sin intentionally, aware of it, practice it, is a child of the devil. That's the problem we have in our world today is there's so much ignorance that they're doing things, but the church wants to hold them accountable for things they've done unintentional because they don't have the knowledge that would make it intentional. Or the church just wants to worry about their trajectory and say, well, you know what? I know they're saved. I know they came to church. I know they said the prayer. You know, maybe, maybe we don't know. Maybe, maybe it's okay. We are in a time where this thing is being watered down more and more by the day. Why? Because we don't understand it. Because somebody's telling us along the way that you've got to change everything. But I believe the altered moment of invitation, when you begin to be pulled into this relationship with God, the moment you say, I do, you are not revealed everything about him. He would love for you to. He'd love for this to happen in marriage too, right? Husbands, did you learn something the first week you lived with your wife that you didn't learn when you were dating your wife? No, I did. A lot of things. Didn't challenge whether I want to say I do or not, but someone frustrated me. More importantly, a lot of those moments were something about me. Reading this book uh, with Aries and Caitlin, we talked uh, about putting Jesus at the center of it all. And it said if your marriage is defined by how that person makes you feel, if it's defined by the good moments you have together, um, then realistically, you're not in marriage for that other person. You're in it for yourself. And I begin to evaluate this in our relationship with Christ. If we're in it because it makes us feel good, if we're in it because of the good times, if we're in it because of the moments we're right, we're only in it for ourselves. We're not in it for him. I can assure you on my journey through this book, on my journey in this relationship, he's put me in places where I had to say, God, you're right. Why? And, uh, and then he let me muddle my way through it sometimes. But there was an accountability that come the moment that I became aware of it. And my intentionality had to shift. Otherwise, my sacrifice was not worth it. 
This is the problem that we have to address and connect with, is we have to realize that our sacrifice from the, pro- the moment we met Christ, our sacrifice is still required as we become more aware of what's right and what's wrong, and we become more aware of the relationship he's calling us into, because the moment we become aware of something, we have to let it die at the cross. But the moment you leave it at the cross, you don't pick it up and carry it with you like a big letter A. That's, if you've never read the scarlet letter, the adulteress had to wear that letter A around the camp. We end up being like that. But as I begin to think about this cross and the forces that compel us or push us, uh, we're going to finish this up with another science lesson. We've talked about physics, but... If you have magnets, opposites attract. Same polarities push away. And as I was looking at the cross, what I began to see is a plus sign. And before I met Jesus, my life was a huge negative sign. So what was the cross to me? Invitation. See, we've made this moment in the church that it's not. The Holy Spirit, even though you don't have him on the inside of you, is drawing you to this place, this altar of change. He will open your eyes. It's supposed to happen through the church, but the church is removing ourselves from the equation because we don't want to be around people who are different than us. If you don't think like me, I don't want to spend time with you. I can't love you if you don't think like me. I want to be around all those people. I'm not offended by them anymore. I used to be. I'm offended by your sin, but I just see you doing unintentional things. But in my life, what I realized was that positive and my negative, as I was drawn to it, the moment I got to it, something happened in me in the things I submitted to him and laid down at the cross. Now those negatives became positives and what happened? Push away. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to die on the cross, and he didn't just stay on the cross for everybody to see. Let's all go. We're going to a trip to Jerusalem. For some reason, the body of Christ is still hanging on that cross, and we get to go see him. I don't know how it is. It hasn't aged a year. That's not how it works. The body didn't stay there. It was gone. We don't know what happened to the body. Yeah, we do. Jesus did a whole other thing that nobody else has ever done. That whole body was re-sanctified, and he began to walk in a new anointing. That's the call to the church, is we're supposed to go to this altar to release the things that we don't want, our wounds, our death places, the things that have killed us, the things that have held us back, release them, and in that moment, we leave them there. We're ejected away from that. It does not mean because we don't go, boom, like Jesus did, we kind of get a little bit, because there's still some of those negative things holding us back, right? which limits our testimony of who he is. So in those moments of release, as we begin to release more and more of the negative things in our life, the positive begins to push us away and put us in a trajectory towards glory. And the more we let go, because if you've got a bunch of negative, your trajectory is kind of low, but the more you, more you let go, that trajectory begins to shift a little bit. Get a little air in Something shifts in your life and people begin to take note. So I want to challenge you today. What's your trajectory look like? 
Because over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about, well, next week we've got Father's Day, but one of these works right in with Father's Day. We're going to go back to the Old Testament, and I want to encounter some altered moments through some stories of people in the Bible. And watch from their perspective how that altar was impactful in their life. One of the things you're going to find is at the altar moment, so many of these people made a declaration about who God was because of what they'd experienced. A lot of the names we use for God today, a lot of the names we sing, come in those altar moments because it was a revelation of who God was. In order to grasp truly who God is, you got to lay yourself down. You want to really know God, you got to go out in without any preconceived notions. Because you can't be convicted if you're not, if you're already convinced. I want to challenge you. Can you begin to live a life that demonstrates what this word says instead of just talking? This is the moment that the church truly begins to change atmospheres we walk into because of the altered moments in our life, because of the things we've laid down. Now we can demonstrate it to those around us, not just talk about it. You know, most people that talk about it still carry those things around with them to this day. You walk into their home and they got the, the heads on their walls. Why? Because they're still tied to it. Are you really ready to just take that stuff that used to have value to you, the stuff that you're running away from, all of that, take it outside the city gates and hang it on the cross where it's supposed to be? Really release those things so that you can begin to walk in a new anointing in your life. Because the moment your life becomes altered, it begins to change everyone around you. Because the moment... You become that positive force in your life. When you walk into a room with a bunch of negative, guess what? They respond to it. The moment a light walks into a dark room, guess what? The darkness responds to it. That's the piece that we're going to connect to over these next couple of weeks. We want to identify and connect and walk through these moments. Why? Because you matter. Because the people you're called to matter. It's time for people to see love and grace and mercy on a whole nother level. But in order to do that, we've got to receive it as we lay those things down. As we lay down the broken parts of our outside, God begins to heal and restore us from the inside. That's where true relationship changes and shifts. That's where maybe we become a little less religious, a little less superstitious. I had someone call me this week, say, I believe in God, but I don't know that I believe in Jesus. Okay. So tell me this, 12 men, more, but 12 men, got to live three years intimately with Jesus Christ. Dude that did things that no one had ever done, said things no one had ever said, was who nobody else ever was. And then the one closest to him, Peter, was one of the three, when the road got tough, 
and Jesus was about to be killed, the one who should have known him better than anyone, the one that said, you're the son of God, cusses people out and runs away. I think all of us would probably have been right there with him. You may not have said the flowery language like some of us. I'm a sailor. I know some words. Pray for me. But what caused a trajectory shift three days later? That Peter, the man who was scared of a little girl identifying him as one of Jesus' disciples, all of a sudden something happens that changes his trajectory where he's crucified just like Jesus is. What happened in that moment that changed his mind to say, I don't even want to be recognized because they might kill me, to you know what, I'm willing to die for this. I'm willing to give my everything. It was not because of who Peter was. It be, was because of the revelation of who Jesus is. Because the moment at the altar was a was moment. The moment he reappeared to him became an is moment. Right before in Hebrews 13, right before that scripture, it said Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever told that person, I said, in that moment of revelation when he appeared to them, every one of those men were willing now to die for something because it was so real to them. This is our invitation today. I'm not lining shooting squads up outside, but I can tell you in other countries it happened. There are people that are so bought in and connected to that altar moment that it changed their trajectory forever and they didn't care what they had to go through in order to glorify his name. I want to challenge you today. Did your trajectory change the moment you said, I do? Was it slightly altered? Or did you keep doing, saying, being the same things you were before. Maybe you had a slight shift. Maybe this is the season of a bigger shift. As you get further away of what you want, who He calls you to be. Jesus never healed anybody, never met with a broken person that He didn't finish the statement with, go and sin no more. The invitation to be better, to grow. I thought about Zacchaeus today. Jesus had to get him alone for him to repent for unintentionally taking people's money. You're like, well, he knew he was taking people's money. But there's something that happened when he got in the space of the altar. Through conversation with Jesus, he became aware of it. And he fulfilled what the Old Testament said. If you've wronged somebody, if you've taken money from them, restore it to them. But not only did he restore it to them, it says he gave them over what he had taken. That's the shift in your life when you truly encounter the altar of Jesus Christ. It's not about good enough anymore. It's not about knowing just enough. It is about every breath that I take, every beat in my chest, to get closer to Him, 
so that I can be a difference maker in the world around me. I didn't spend my time over the last week and a half in the next two weeks yelling at people that don't think like me. No. I want to be there for these people. I never want to close the door that somebody can't come to me and say, I want to know him a little bit more. And let's walk that out. And wherever you're at today on your journey, there's always room for another step. Father, we thank you today for the constant invitation, the constant desire from you for us to grow. Father, I pray for the hearts of people today that our heart would break like yours does for those who are hurting and lost. That our desire would to be to give them love, grace, and mercy, not to have them stuck where they're at, not to validate where they're at, but to invite them into a relationship with you. All the while realizing that their journey, their trajectory will not look like ours because they didn't start in the same place we did. Father, let our desire not to be to connect them and, and have them start what we did, but to connect them to you. So we're not as worried about our beginning place, but we're solidified in our ending. Father, we thank you today that you loved us enough to pay the ultimate price. Open our ears and our hearts to receive that in a new way. Let us see you in a moment that will affect our trajectory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go.